0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And tonight we're looking together at chapter 2. And we'll be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 2. You'll find this on page 1028 of the Pew Bible. 1028. This begins the seven letters to the churches. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The seven letters to the seven historical churches of the the glorified Christ speaks to the entire church of all ages. Seven, as we have seen other times in this book, is symbolic and is meant to show that this applies to God's people of all places and all ages of the world. And each letter opens, as always they do, with the salutation, with the identity of the sender, and the identity of the recipients. Here we we see in verse 1, it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus, And then it goes on to talk about the words of him, and it describes who it is, the Lord Jesus. And that term angel in Greek also means messenger, and in this case, I believe it's referring to the minister of the particular church. This first letter is addressed to the minister of the church in Ephesus, which was, as you know, an important cosmopolitan seaport, the greatest city of Asia Minor. It was an important commercial center, and it was the seat of the provincial government. Ephesus was wealthy and prosperous, magnificent, and it had the famous Artemis cult. You remember how recently we considered how Demetrius stirred up a mob, and for two hours they cried, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The temple of Artemis, as a matter of fact, was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. The Apostle Paul labored here for three years, and in that time he planted the church. Also, the Apostle John, we're told, ministered here in his later years, and he was very close to the Isle of Patmos, where he was exiled. And so this letter is sent by Jesus long after the church had been founded. As a matter of fact, we believe it's to the next generation. The initial spontaneity and enthusiasm from the early days seems to have diminished. Though faithful, they did not have the same spiritual fervor of their parents, And from what our Lord says, the situation in Ephesus was grave and the stakes are high. He says, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And like the other letters, this one has a threefold pattern. The title, the condition, and the promise. First of all, the title of Christ. Every designation of Christ is drawn from elsewhere and refers to some relevant attribute for that particular church. Here it says the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this, of course, is drawn from the opening revelation of the glorified Christ in the first chapter of this book. John saw one like a son of man in the midst of the lampstands holding these seven stars in his right hand. And we're told that the stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are themselves the seven churches. And given what we've said above, the angels probably refers to the ministers. And it shows us that Jesus is Lord of the ministry and he's the loving bridegroom of the church. He holds the leaders of the churches in the firm grip of his right hand He establishes their orbit, he directs their movement, he fills the gospel with light. And in every place, the leadership of the true church is under his special care and protection. He puts them in place, he governs their ministry, he protects them from evil, and he keeps them from stumbling. And thank God he does that. Because if Jesus Christ, our Lord, did not preserve and protect his leaders and his people, then nobody would stand. And I think the more mature we grow, the more we realize the need for his power. Nothing but divine preservation keeps us from falling from grace. For example, in Ephesus, he sustained the apostle Paul. He preserved young Timothy, and he kept the aged John. And the light of preaching and the strength of its influence is under his sovereign supervision, And the true under-shepherds are kept unto salvation by his almighty power. It doesn't mean that we're exempt from persecution or even death itself. After all, we're like sheep to be slaughtered. But till our work is complete and until we're called home, we shine brightly. This is very important because as leaders go, so goes the church. And that's the way God intended it. The sheep follow the shepherds. And it highlights, I believe, the power and the authority of Christ to establish and to uphold and to remove a ministry. It is only by his infinite wisdom and his sovereign grace that the true gospel ministry exists, after all. That's why in Matthew 9, Jesus himself says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So you and I are told to pray for skillful and faithful and wise and industrious laborers with a heart for the sheep. And oftentimes Jesus will give a church the leaders they deserve and don't ask for. God is pleased, I don't know why, but he is pleased to work through the earnest prayers of his people. And apparently the number of laborers according to that text will be in proportion to the number of our prayers. So if we neglect to pray for godly leadership, he may give us what we don't ask for. You've heard it said, if you aim at nothing, you'll always hit what you aim for. We're called to ask for men after his own heart who will feed the sheep and spread the gospel. And King Jesus is not only the Lord of the ministry, but he's also the loving bridegroom of the church. His parting promise to his disciples was this, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And what he says there is important because it shows us he's ever-present with his people and always taking pleasure in his bride. His focus is not only on the leadership. His focus and his concern is for the entire body. He walks in the midst of the churches and he never sleeps and he's constantly active and he's about the business of working all things together for good to those who love him. And he's always among his people, and he's keenly aware of our lives and our service and our suffering. It may not seem that way, but it's true. So remember, when the circumstances of your life or mine are confusing and the events seem out of control, the chief shepherd and the head of the church is reigning supreme over all things. That's his promise. Do you remember what Luke said of Stephen when he was being martyred? They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Every congregation is dependent upon his grace and sustained by his power, without exception. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So let us never think unworthy thoughts about the care of our Savior. Isaiah 49, the prophet says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And Jesus even says that we're engraved on the palms of his hands. Isaiah 49, 16. So let's draw comfort from the imminence and the transcendence of Jesus Christ. He is transcendent, to be sure. He's infinitely above us. He's Lord of all things. He's able to bless and to curse. He's able to reward and to punish, and he can establish and vacate any ministry he pleases. He can remove a minister. He can take away the means of grace. He can close a church. He can withdraw his presence. He's transcendent. He can bring a spiritual famine. That is a famine of the word of God. It's a famine not of bread or meat or drink, but far more serious. In Amos 8.11, it's called a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. No churches, no ministers, no congregations, and no spiritual life. And when that happens, those from whom it is taken will walk in darkness. But Christ is also imminent because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He knows those who take refuge in him, according to Nahum. And it says in Isaiah, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or the Psalms, excuse me. So that's the title of Christ. But then he goes on to talk about the condition of the church. And notice how much there is in the church at Ephesus that our Lord commends. That's important to remember. First of all, they're diligent. He says, I know your works and your toil. They labored for the kingdom. Second of all, their long-suffering. I know your patient endurance. The Artemis followers were all around them. Third, they were firmly orthodox. They had a keen nose for heresy, and they contended for the faith. Look what it says in verse 2. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They were firmly orthodox. Fourth, they were resolute. They seem to be determined to remain faithful to Christ. Verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They hadn't become disillusioned, or they hadn't given up, but they were persevering. Fifth, they were morally upright. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Obviously, standing firm against idolatrous and immoral, immoral influences of the day. Morally upright. So in the articles of faith and the forms of worship and a commitment to duty, they were a shining light. They were serious about the faith. They worked hard at living the Christian life. And one might think that this was a model church. They seemed to do everything right. But while there was much to commend, there was just one defect, one great defect in this church. Verse four. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've forsaken your first love. Despite their diligence and their patience and their orthodoxy and their resolve and their morality, the Lord had something against them, and the situation was apparently grave. Leon Morris is right. He said they completely abandoned their first fine flush of enthusiastic love. They had not left the object of their love, but the love for the object had dried up. They had lost the fervency of that love with which they had first embraced Christ. And it seems they fell to the temptation of placing the emphasis on all on sound teaching. or <laughs> orthodox. This active, faithful, orthodox church no longer treasured the Lord Jesus Christ. And scripture likens the church's love for Christ to a wife's love for her husband. I want you to to think with me of a wife who is faithful, loyal, hardworking, and yet feels nothing. She serves, she helps, she submits, but in the depths of her heart, she's cold and indifferent. And somewhere along the line, her affection for him cooled, and she was relatively disinterested. Perhaps she loves him, but she doesn't like him anymore, and it's all duty. She trudges on in performing her duties purely out of a sense of obligation. The meals, her attention, their intimacy, they're all carried out in robotic fashion from a sense of mere duty. And it would be far worse if she refused, to be sure, But, as it is, she's abandoned her first love. She's dutiful, but she's undevoted. The marriage is like a contract. Her affection has dried up, the sweetness has been sucked out, and the marriage is dull. And like this, the Lord Jesus is unable to find the happiness and enjoyment that he wants to in his bride. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, but my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And as one commentator mentioned, that nothing but the fervent love of the bride can satisfy the bridegroom. So this otherwise commendable Ephesian church had a major defect, and so grievous was it that Christ threatens to remove the lampstand, to unchurch them. The church as they knew it would lose its influence, its fellowship, and all of its spiritual life. They were not blatantly sinful. They were not rebellious. They were just cold and formal and undevoted. They had lost their fervency and they no longer cherished Jesus, Jesus, the pearl of great price. And this kind of defect applies to individuals just as much as it can apply to congregations, doesn't it? It's not hard to lose one's fervency. It's not difficult to lose our devotion. It's not apostasy after all. It's not immorality. It's not error or sloth like those less diligent and unorthodox people. No, what this is, is a subtle, inward, spiritually lethal indifference like that of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're concerned about externals. They're formally but coldly, religionists. They give little thought to the inward parts and how they stand before God. They're diligent in their duty, at least the outward ones. They're faithful in their doctrine. They're respected by others. And the only stain on their profession of faith is this lack of fervency for the love of Jesus. But that's a big stain, apparently. It taints everything else in the Christian life. They're no longer moved by the news Christ died under the wrath of God to save them from their sins Absent is the joy they once experienced over what seemed like a changed heart. And the Bible doesn't hold their attention, and worship services don't stir stir their excitement. It's dull. The same duties once seen as privileges now are viewed as chores. And the truth is, a person like this has just grown weary. But of course, his reputation is on the line, you know. He sings praise to God, but he does so with barely an audible sound. He offers prayer, but it's cold and forced and heartless and just really an inconvenience. He neither feels deeply nor believes strongly nor serves diligently. And the sad, tragic fact is that he has just lost his first love. And this letter is for him. We're told in Matthew 24 that the love of many will grow cold. And you know something? True devotion is never without duty, but duty may be without true devotion. You remember the elder brother? What a powerful story he told. He said to his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Though he was called a son, he differed little from one of the servants. He had been serving his father from something other than filial love. We may be hardworking. We may be patient, orthodox, resolute, and even moral. But if our love has grown cold, if we don't treasure Christ above everything else, it's all in vain. What pleases the Lord is a deep, pervasive, all-constraining devotion. And so tonight we're exhorted to examine ourselves and to ask our own souls some hard questions. Have I lost my first love for Christ? Am I going through the motions? Is my delight in Jesus less fervent than my interest in someone or something else? Have I stopped longing for those times of fellowship in the Word? And prayer? Do I rationalize things that displease him by simply saying, I'm only human? Have I stopped giving to the work of God willingly, generously, cheerfully? Do I view his commands as a restriction upon my happiness rather than an expression of his love? I'm sure there are many other questions that we could ask ourselves, but our concern ought to be the state of our hearts in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the condition. But then finally, there is the promise of God. The Lord of the church provides instruction for what the Ephesians must do. He says in verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Recall those former days before indifference set in. Reflect upon your earlier devotion. Try to remember how different everything looks through the lens of zeal and fervor. It's as if he's saying, think back to the former days when you enjoyed a closer walk with me. Consider how you viewed sin, how you denied the flesh, how you turned from the world and you clung to me. And then repent of your indifference and your lack of devotion, turn away from it, and recommit yourself to me. There has to be a sharp break, you know. No hesitation, no delay, no looking back. As Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. It involves a heartfelt sorrow and grief over spiritual declension, and we pour out our heart and we ask God to restore the joy of the Lord. And we look to Christ to rekindle in our hearts the flame of fervent devotion. Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then renew your efforts of devotion. Do the works you did at first. Engage in prayer thoughtfully and attend worship expectantly and devour the word as much as you can. And do those fundamental things that the Spirit uses to fuel Christian devotion. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached, Jesus says, and everyone forces his way into it. And the reigning Christ holds out hope for those who abandon their first love. He says to us in verse 7, thankfully, to the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And what he means by the one who conquers is simply the one who believes, who believes to the end. John echoes this teaching as he highlights the importance of our faith. He says in 1 John 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. By faith we're enabled to overcome the besetting sins and resist the temptations that so easily entangle us. And by faith we prevail over our errors and endure afflictions and handle the difficulties in our lives. And this is the good fight of the faith that we wage in this life. And there's a glorious end. Because to the one who overcomes in this way, the Lord will grant the privilege of partaking of the tree of life. Can you imagine? And that glorious tree is a symbol of immortality and will live forever. We'll also enjoy the river of his delights and the internal pleasures that are at his right hand. And at death, or at his return, we'll be ushered into heaven, the paradise of God. And we'll be filled with heaven's most exquisite, inexhaustible, eternal joy. The Garden of Eden was simply a foreshadowing of the heavenly paradise opened by Christ. And it simply means that for the true Christian, the best is yet to come. May God enable us to reach that best by persevering in faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled as the Lord Jesus speaks to the church, and we recognize that this letter is meant not only for them, but for us. We repent of our indifference, our lack of devotion and fervency, and pray that you, Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Church, would rekindle in our hearts that first love, that zeal and fervency that pleases you so much. We ask this in your matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.